According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We will be once again in Philippians chapter 1 this evening. Questions and answers, though, may take us elsewhere before we uh, return to our Philippians study. We left off looking at verse 6, and we're still in verse 6 tonight. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And it's so important that we understand the difference between a beginning and a perfection. Because uh, all too often we get a good start with what we're doing and then we get complacent. And we say, well, that's good enough. And we get very pleased with the beginning. And uh, we don't get graded on the beginning. The, uh, the, the wreath is given to the one who wins the race, not the one who starts off real well. All right? And so we want to understand what perfection is in the plan of God. All right, and then we'll have some things to say about the day of Christ Jesus as we discuss the rapture of the church and the judgment seat of Christ to follow the blessings that we have to look forward to that glorious day. We're not Israel, and we're not looking forward to the day of the Lord with trepidation and fear and trembling and terrible things in store for Israel in the day of the Lord. Uh, But we're looking forward to the day of Christ Jesus and the blessings of the blessed hope and the rapture and the judgment seat of Christ and, and all those blessings as well. So... All right, let me uh, open us up with a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, go to our questions after that. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your faithfulness. We rejoice tonight that once again we get to become the recipients of your truth and your faithfulness. Thankful for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, who uh, leads us in all things, who uh, opens the eyes of our understanding, who ministers to our human spirits. And we call upon your faithfulness, Father, as we study to show ourselves approved. I thank you that you are nearby and knowable, and that you have made all the provision for us to study to show ourselves approved. So we call upon your faithfulness tonight to bless our time together. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we've got a microphone uh, ready to go and take that. I got one question by email this week. I'll start there. Uh, Gaitha, some of you know Gaitha. She's visited us before a couple times. Um, lives way out somewhere, but beyond the other side of Marble Falls, I think. So she's visited us a couple times. Um, in any event, she listens to everything on the MP3 file and emails very regularly, and we sure appreciate that. Um, I, I think one visit was at the old building, and two visits were here in the new building now when she had uh, a daughter in the hospital. But anyway, Gaitha emailed. Uh, her most recent question is about Bible concordances. Uh, she was flipping through her concordance and it just all of a sudden dawned on, dawned on her that um, where did concordances come from? <laughs> you know, they're, they're not as old as the Bible, but who invented the concordance and, and uh, how old you know, are they? So uh, when was the Bible concordance created and by who? I was doing my Bible study today and it was like, wham, why have I never thought about this before? I've always used my King James Bible and now I'm using the Bible you gave me and comparing the, the two. I thought about this and I looked back to the 1611 King James Version that I have and also it has a concordance. So how far back does the concordance go? Well, um, yeah, she may have a printed 1611 King James Bible, probably not. It's probably a 1789 King James Bible, but be that as it may, the concordance is much newer than that and just gets inserted into the back of many of those Bibles. And so um, if you have a uh, phone you can silence it. All right. 
Anyway, so uh, who invented the concordance? Anybody know? Before I give, you, give the answer away. Um, first of all, they're not really needed anymore uh, in the modern world because of computers. And then we've kind of replaced concordances with software that can functionally do the same thing much better, much faster. But uh, before computers, uh, they had concordances. An alphabetical list of the principal words used in a book or a body of work. And because they tend to be quite lengthy and quite boring and quite expensive uh, before printing presses, uh, there weren't many. And even after printing presses, there still were not many because it's, it's a lot of pages and it's a lot of painstaking detail, but it's worth it for biblical studies. And uh, so you read a text and, and every word gets written down and then they get alphabetized and then they get indexed. And uh, so you can learn every time, you know, wherever the word the appears. And usually they don't do definite articles and adjectives, things like that, but principal words, important words. And, um, and that. So only works of special importance have concordances prepared for them, such as the Vedas, that's Hebrew, uh, that's a Hindu holy text, the Bible, the Quran, the works of Shakespeare. Uh, classical Latin or Greek authors, and that's pretty much it until the modern world, until computers allowed them to start indexing other things that aren't as vital and really who cares. Um, but they, they create concordances because they can now with, uh, with software the way that it is. Uh, concordance is more than an index. Additional material make producing them labor-intensive even when assisted by computers and uh, so forth. Anyway, Coming down here to the history of it, um, there's also bilingual concordance and topical concordance, such as Nave's topical Bible. The first Bible concordance was compiled for the Vulgate, uh, that's the Latin Bible, the Vulgate by Hugh, Hugh of St. Cher in 1262. So it goes back to the 13th century. That's before uh, printing press, right? That's before Gutenberg. That's by hand. That's a monk with a quill on a, on a scroll who's writing uh, a concordance. Uh, Hugh uh, employed 500 monks to assist him. Uh, in 1448, Rabbi Mordecai Nathan completed a concordance to the Hebrew Bible. It took him 10 years. Okay. A concordance to the Greek New Testament was published in 1599 by Henry Stevens, and the Septuagint was done a couple years later by Conrad Kirshner in 1602. All of these, by the way, are pre-King James. Okay. Um, the first concordance to the English Bible was published in 1550 by Mr. Marbeck, and then... Uh, According to Cruden, it did not employ the verse numbers devised by Stevens in 1545, but the pretty large concordance of Mr. Cotton did. So there was uh, Marbeck, Cotton, Cruden, and then Strong. This is kind of the, the heritage on that. Cruden's was, is still in print, uh, even though it, I think it's inferior to Strong's, but you can, you can still find them. And then the Strong's concordance. It took James Strong's 20 years to uh, compile that. You know, now we search it in seconds, and it's, it's just stunning to me. What, uh, what's available. So anyway, that's kind of the history on that. And if you want more, uh, Wikipedia's got pretty good articles on this. And so you can pull it up in the, uh, in the Wikipedia page. All right. So I'm going to mark that as completed. Normally I ask the person that if that was satisfactory and if that answered everything, but I will probably get an email in the morning telling me that it was good. <laughs> we'll find out. I hope it was. hope it was comprehensive. All right, so we're ready for some fresh questions then. Anything else that uh, is on your mind tonight? We'll go to the front row here, Christopher. Up front here, please. In Genesis 6, uh, I guess, 
six two talks about the sons of men taking wives. Uh-huh. Does that mean that their children, since we're talking about fallen angels, their children were born in sinless perfection since they didn't have old sin natures? Or did they? And where did they come from? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, the uh, Genesis 6, I believe these are fallen angels that uh, have abandoned their own domain, is what it says in Jude, and that they, uh, in abandoning their own domain, they're entering into the realm of humanity and procreating with, with human women. And uh, so they're, having, they're giving birth to hybrids, to what we call Nephilim. And, uh, and um, of course, when, when the Virgin Mary conceived, she gave birth to the sinless, perfect Jesus Christ. Although the procreation there was done by God. Okay? This procreation is done by these fallen angels. And so uh, I would not conclude that these Nephilim were sinless and perfect. In fact, the description is they're pretty wicked. Uh, because they, they became the pinnacle of the wicked world that was destroyed. So um, now we know in, in human beings the, the sin nature is passed from the Father. We can glean that because of sins of the Father verses and because of um, the virgin birth of Christ and because of, I think there's, there are other indicators too that, that speak to the, the Father is the one that bestows to the third and the fourth generation as it says the sins of the Father there. So um, anyway, so what, what do we do with if your if your dad is a fallen angel? So you don't get a fallen you don't get a human sin nature. Do you get an angel sin nature? Is there such a thing as an angel sin nature? Uh, what is the nature of a fallen angel? Because see, they, they normally they don't procreate. There are no girl angels. So a fallen angel doesn't have any babies until he makes a nephilim with a human woman. So um, a lot of it's guesswork at this point, uh, based on Second Peter and Jude and some other things. They they do produce the giants. The nephilim are giants. Um, and when the giants die, when their body is killed, their, their spirit lives on. And, and it's called a departed spirit or a shade. Uh, the Hebrew is rephaim. And they live in the abyss, sometimes they escape out of the abyss, and then they become demons uh, roaming this world and haunting this world and desiring uh, to uh, be uh, clothed in a human body of some kind. So um, anyway, it's, it's, it's really mysterious. They, don't, they can't be saved because they're not in Adam. And if they're not in Adam, they can't be redeemed by, by the last Adam. So um, what provision in grace, what provision do they have? The Bible doesn't exactly say, but it does say that Jesus went and preached to them during the three days that he was in the grave. And so whatever he preached to them, um, like I say, the Bible doesn't say, but it, it's, it's, it's a curious thing to me. And uh, maybe at some point I'll, I'll learn some more. <laughs> but it's not a human sin nature. So they're not in Adam, uh, but they're not sinless and perfect like Christ. That, that's huge. Okay? All right. Good question. Appreciate that. All right. So let's, uh, do you have a follow-up to that? Okay. Chris, behind you there. Three rows back. I've been meaning to ask you this for a while. What does the word Nephilim actually mean? It's debated, but the, the typical, the most likely, it comes from the verb nafal, it means to fall, and so they are fallen ones. Uh, as far as, that's probably the most common root that, that Nephilim would, would refer to. The em ending is the masculine plural ending, and, and so nafal would be the singular. Yeah. All right, Lewis, across the aisle there. Um, so basically, we should assume that that this that fallen angels used to be able to procreate, but Jesus later on says that they don't. 
No, I don't think that they ever... Uh, you know, humanity was created male and female. He created them. Every angel we know about is a male angel. Uh, except someone will say, well, there's, there's a, a vision of storks and a couple of women. But that's a vision. That's not a, a narrative of, of female angels. And the Bible has no female angels. Should we assume that this, that this ability to procreate was taken away? No. That they can still do, make Nephilim? They can, yes. Okay. Uh, as long as I'm in Genesis four, uh, 6, notice it says in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, okay? Right. And also afterward. Ooh. <laughs> that jumps out at me. Okay? Because, I mean, the flood killed them all. How'd they come back? Okay? And also afterward, when sons of God came in to the daughters of men. And so the same way, because uh, when they came out, when Israel came out of Egypt and they started to spy out the land, guess what? Satan had populated the land with Nephilim for 400 years. There were giants in the land, and that's what scared the spies. The spies were like, oh, well, let's go back to Egypt, right? Ten of them. And two of the spies said, no, let's go kill those giants and take this land, because God's giving us this land. I think Goliath was a Nephilim. The, the, the Septuagint constantly uses gigantes, giant, as the translation for these Nephilim. And whether you call them Nephilim or Anakim or Rephaim or Zanzumim, there's different terms for them in the different languages, but uh, they are the hybrid giant beings. And so human beings, uh, they look like grasshoppers in their sight, right? Because they're so huge. And that, that human beings look like grasshoppers in their sight. So that's, that's the issue there. And so Nephilim were produced uh, before the flood, after the flood, after the conquest or before the conquest, uh, even in David's time. And the reason why I think it stopped, I think tactically every time a, a fallen angel procreated he got thrown in jail that the, these fallen angels were were put in chains and bound in tartarus and and to me uh, you know it doesn't exactly spell it out but the bible seems to say that by the time we get to the new testament satan had changed his tactics instead of procreating and producing nephilim instead he was doing more of uh, demonization and and demon possession and and things of that nature and, and I suspect it's because Satan was cutting his losses and saying, uh, you know, I'm losing too many top lieutenants to this, uh, this procreation process. But I do believe, though, if you ever study eschatology, there is one more Nephilim on the way. And that's the, that's the, the seed of the serpent. That Antichrist will be Nephilim. That Antichrist, that Satan himself will procreate Antichrist. And, that, and that, that's which is why, read Revelation chapter 20, find out that Satan gets bound in, with chains in the abyss for a thousand years. And so... Uh, there's, there's at least one more Nephilim that will uh, take his stand upon this earth. And uh, I hope he's already born. <laughs> I hope we're that close to the tribulation. All right, Doug has a question. Let's get the microphone to the back row. The back back row. That's even further back besides the back row. Is there any indication that um, there were female Nephilim? No. Every Nephilim that we're told about has always been a male Nephilim. And also, I suspect that they were sterile. I think mules are, are sterile. I don't know that Nephilim can reproduce. Uh, I think Goliath has five brothers. I don't know that he has five sons. And that's, uh, there's some manuscript corruption there that, that leaves that as an open question. Thank you. Uh -huh. Yeah. All right, back row then. Here we go. If I hear you right, you said that when Jesus went down, well, died on the cross, he went down, he ministered to the fallen angels. Did any of them able to redeem themselves after that? 
It says that he went to proclaim, uh, to preach to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient during the days of Noah. And it's spoken of in Second Peter as the, um, the, the victorious proclamation of our Savior. So he had three days while he was in the grave, and during that time, his spirit descended into, into Hades, and he preached to those, to those spirits in prison. And that's, uh, I believe, he wasn't preaching to fallen angels, I believe he was preaching to Nephilim spirits. Wouldn't they have a chance to redeem themselves then? It doesn't say what he preached to them, but he did, he did evangelize. Yeah, he did preach. All right? Why? Can you say that in the microphone, please? Why? Why? Oh, you know, I don't always answer the why question. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think it's because uh, he leaves everyone without excuse. And I think without preaching to them that they may claim an excuse. And so I think he preached to them so as to leave them without excuse. And, there, and there's, some, there's other reasons for that. And, and if you want to go to the Life of Christ class, um, I recommend on the church website, we taught this, it's uh, available. I go to audio recordings, I go to completed studies, I go to Life of Christ. There it is. And in the um, Resurrection Through the Ascension, all right. No, it was before the resurrection, actually. Let me back up. It's the final week of work. All right, so from the triumphal entry down to the cross, the women watch. Here we go, victorious proclamation. It's, uh, there's two lessons on this on the, on the website. It's uh, number 435 and number 436. And uh, this was the section where I went into after he was buried, but before he was raised, and the, the information that's given in Second Peter about that preaching that he did in Hades. And uh, so, yeah, there's two hours of teaching you can get through there, plus printed notes that are available there as a PDF document. So, and if you can't find that uh, tomorrow when you get home, shoot me an email and I'll send you, I'll send you this link. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, then we can also provide, uh, we can provide audio files on a, on a CD that you can listen to. Yeah, we can definitely get those classes available. All right, our grand finale tonight comes from the front corner here. This is kind of a two questions. Um, do we have an, a, an idea about what the average size of a Nephilim was? All we know is how tall Goliath was. That's the, Goliath is the only Nephilim that gives us the, the feet and inches. Okay. Yeah, all, all we know about the other Anakim is is that they made us look like grasshoppers. Yeah, so we don't have an exact, well, you know, the cubit and span and, and that only for Goliath as far as that goes. Uh-huh. And I was talking with a guy at work um, who's also a believer, uh-huh. and he was talking about um, being a stumbling block for other believers. Uh-huh. I can't help but think of personal responsibility as well as if you allow that person to be a stumbling block. So my question is, how do we exercise our freedom, but yet not be a stumbling block? Ah, ooh, that's a long answer. Um, yeah, that's Romans 14, and, and uh, I've got hours and hours on that on the website also from the Roman study. 
Um, and I'll talk to you after class on that real quick. Okay. And then, uh, did you have a question too? Okay. All right. Well, then let's uh, appreciate that. Um, good questions tonight. Very good questions. All right. Join me then in Philippians 1.6 as we've been looking at persuasion and perfection. I have been persuaded of this very thing that he who began a good work in you. Who's that? That's God. That's God. We didn't save ourselves. We did not begin a good work in us. God began the good work in us. He redeemed us. He saved us. He justified us. Everything that he did, that grace package, is all God. None of us. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So there is a, uh, there is a, a limit and that's the rapture. That's the judgment seat of Christ. That's what we're looking forward to. And since we're not there yet, since we're still here on this earth in our mortality, uh, then we are still this work in progress. And, and he who began that work continues to do that work. And that's, uh, that should be a, a greatly encouraging uh, principle for each one of us to apply. All right? Let me get ahead here to... That's kind of neat. Um, what we were looking at... A beginning is not a perfection, as per this passage, plus also Galatians 3.3 that we looked at in our Galatians series. If you begin by grace, you better that's how you're going to be perfected is by grace. You can't begin by grace and then try to perfect yourself through human effort. It's not going to happen. And uh, he even called them fools for attempting such a thing. We then looked at the vocabulary for telos, which is uh, a noun that means the end, and saw some great principles there from the Gospels and from Paul's epistles, from Hebrews. I think uh, from um, we looked at all those. Then we looked at the adjective, teleos. What does it mean to be perfect? And this is a blessing too because um, if, you, uh, if you know anyone that's a perfectionist, okay, that's not this. <laughs> all right? So get rid of that thinking. Perfection, in God's view, is His own work in you. And what's perfect in God's view is what He designed you for. And uh, that each one of us is a new creation created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Right? His craftsmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the thing is, is we're not all cookie cutter, right? We're not all the same. And so God's perfection of me is going to be different than His perfection of you and everyone with a few things in common, of course. We're all going to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But apart from that, uh, our gifts, our ministries, our effects are going to take us in widely different applications, and that's fine. And, and some things that, that might, uh, circumstances and testings and ministry fields that, that are very useful in perfecting one believer could be absolutely horrible in perfecting another believer, see, and, and uh, things that are, that are absolutely critical for their perfection would be a train wreck for you. And, and different things like that, see. And so you need to find, you need to be obedient to the Lord and run with endurance the race that's set before you. Each one of us has an individual race, which to me is extraordinary. Because yes, we're a body, and we operate together, and we love one another, and we serve one another, and there's an essential unity to the body of Christ. Even with that, comes an individual race that only you, only each one of us can run that individual race. And my race is not your race. 
and, uh, and, and, and different aspects there, okay? So the idea of perfection and the idea of teleos is what we were looking at in this, uh, in this adjective, and it's the standard. Matthew 5, 48, we're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. And uh, the reason why we're learning the Word of God is so we can prove the uh, will of God, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And, uh, and I tell you, there's a lot of things we face in the will of God and we don't want to call it perfect, but God does call it perfect. You know, you get a, you get a loved one dies, you say, that's not perfect. Well, it is because it's in the will of God. And, uh, and so thank Him for His wisdom and understanding perfection better than we do in, uh, in different ways. Of course, perfect love casts out all fear in 1 John uh, 4.18. So many of these perfect verses. I like Hebrews 5.14. Um, James 1.4, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result. See? And uh, without testing, you never get there. Vital that uh, I think we embrace that as well. All right. So uh, we have that. We looked at all those. We're ready now for the verbs. I'm going to be missing some slides, but that's okay. I do have more slides prepared after this one, but I just don't think they've been loaded yet. All right. Um, the verbs now. We've seen the noun. We've seen the adjective. Um, now we got the verbs. And the verbs, um, if you think about it, it's, it's, it's curious because... Um, we understand in English, you know, if something is perfect, if uh, I can describe a thing with a, an adjective like, you know, that's the, the perfect piano or the perfect pastor or the perfect whatever. I can, I, can, I can use perfect as an adjective. I can use perfect as a noun, all right? But then as a verb, the idea of perfecting something might indicate that, um, well, I'm kind of messing up, you know, early on. I'm, I'm not doing so well now. But if I keep practicing, if I keep practicing, eventually, practice makes perfect, right? And so something that's kind of crummy now can eventually kind of improve and get perfected, all right? And um, that, I think that misses teleo and teleao. I think that misses some of the, the stress that the New Testament gives it because the idea that something needs to be perfected does not necessarily mean there's anything wrong with it now, all right? It just speaks to something that, by virtue of it not being finished, has more to attain to. All right, and so by virtue of its being incomplete, it might be it might be great the way that it is now, but it's not what it's gonna be. You know, on the sixth day of creation, God looked around and saw everything was very good, and so He rested on the seventh day. But then, what did He do on the eighth day? And okay, it was very good, but it's not the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's not what we're looking forward to. And so, uh, and, and not only that, there was something that was not good. The man was still alone. So that's not good. In any event, um, Jesus has had to be perfected. And this is what bothers a lot of folks. It doesn't bother me at all. I hope it doesn't bother you. But if it does, we'll, uh, we'll work through it together. Okay, we'll get you there. Um, the idea that he needed to be perfected when he was already perfect. He was already sinless. He was already God. You know, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then the Word became flesh. Ooh, wait a minute. Something's happening here. Okay? And, and this is, this is uh, you know, it's, it's, 
a little bit philosophical. It's a little bit kind of, uh, of abstract, which I don't like. I'm more of a concrete kind of guy. But nevertheless, I think it's useful that you and I can, can consider these things. When we talk about God, He's immutable. He doesn't change. He can't change. The reason why is often thought of because of His perfection. Any change from what God is is by definition a flaw, right? It's something imperfect. If, if God was to change tomorrow, then that indicates either He wasn't perfect before or, or something's different now, right? And so it's like if you're at the North Pole, any step you take is going to be south, right? And so we use those as illustrations, okay? Was that good? We use those as illustrations, but now here's God, the Son, perfect, and yet He has humanity invested into Him by God the Father. God the Father begets the humanity of Jesus Christ. And in begetting the humanity of Jesus Christ and in investing that into the person of God the Son, we have hypostatic union. And for the first time now, there's something additional. Okay? Still perfect. He's no less God than He ever was before. But now, in addition to that, He has humanity. And there's, then there becomes the necessity for that to be perfected. Okay, and so some of these verses maybe will jump out at us in this regard, and uh, and we'll see that a ton of them come in Hebrews, and uh, and this is this is key. This is why he had to have a first advent. By the way, this is why he had thirty plus years before his ministry, then three and a half years of ministry. I think he was pushing forty when he went to the cross. Okay, and uh, what 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 was all that for? You know why why didn't he just you know, be sinless and perfect when he was born. And okay, a baby's not going to go to the cross, but, you know, couldn't a 10-year-old go to the cross? You know, couldn't a 12-year-old go to the cross? I mean, the 12-year-old went to the temple. So why couldn't a 12-year-old go to the cross? Okay? And understanding the things that he learned and how he grew and what he taught and everything that he endured was not only for the cross, but it was beyond that. It was equipping him to be our high priest. It was equipping him to sit at the Father's right hand and identify with you and with me and with our testing. And I think he could not until he was in full adult status and even full uh, middle age status, which he would have been at, in his 40s. Okay, um, I think uh, that allows him now to identify with us and the testing we go through. So let's look at these verses and see uh, if we can get through this here tonight. Uh, we I'm going to combine these lists, and we looked at John 4.34 on Sunday, and I just want to very quickly run through each one of these, because John 4, John 5, John 17, and John 19, they all come in the Gospel of John, and uh, the, the disciple who was most intimate with Jesus, the, uh, the final Gospel written, decades after the other Gospels were written, John writes this Gospel to expand upon things that were not emphasized in the synoptic accounts. So um, anyway, John 4.34, Jesus said to them, my food is to accomplish, is to do the will of him who sent me and to perfect his work, to accomplish his work. So perfection as a verb speaks of accomplishing something as uh, Jesus is accomplishing this for the Father, right? To accomplish his work, to teleao his work. See, until Jesus does it, the work is simply in the plan of God, in the mind of God, in the will of God, 
But it's not done until Jesus does it. And then it's perfected. I think that's a neat way to think about it. John 5.36 in a similar application. The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, that is to finish, to complete, to perfect. The works which the Father has given me to teleao, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And this chapter has such a depth of meat to it that the Pharisees hated him because he was doing miracles on the Sabbath, but he says, my Father's working until now and I myself am working. And, and for, it, for it to be any other way would be a, a diminishing of, uh, of love. When you look at verse 20 or verse 19, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And so the Father planned out everything and demonstrated it and the Son went and did it. And from creation onward. Okay? including His first advent here and everything. Remember, it's the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. This was all according to the Father's plan. For the Father loves the Son. This is a love application. And shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. All things. By the way, I think that's, this verse demands a fullness of time dispensation. I say that because all things has to include how to be a father. If a father doesn't teach his son how to be a father, then he's leaving something out. And it's the fullness of time that Jesus Christ serves as the everlasting father in uh, Isaiah 11 and, or Isaiah 9 and, and Revelation 21 in any event. So he shows him all things that he himself is doing and the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Jesus is going to do some amazing things in the second advent that will make everybody forget first advent. Okay? And then in the new heavens and new earth, man, I can't wait to see what Jesus does for a thousand generations of those who love Him with no more sin, no more death. Yeah, that's going to be fun to watch. All right. And so this is what He's accomplishing. The, the works which the Father has given me to perfect, complete, accomplish. John 17. Here is this powerful prayer this is really the Lord's Prayer, not that other one, but this one, okay? And he's on his way to the cross and uh, he lifts up his eyes and he prays, Father, the hour has come. Isn't that something? Right up until this, it's the hour had not yet come, the hour had not yet come, and everyone who tried to kill him couldn't kill him because his hour had not yet come. But now his hour had come. It's time to go to the cross. So he goes to prayer. And it's beautiful. He, he says, uh, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you even as you gave Him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given Him He may give eternal life. You know, the whole insanity of losing your salvation. Ar- the Arminian theology is, is ludicrous because that, that would require the Son to disobey the Father. That the Father would give a believer to Jesus and then Jesus would say, nah, I'm taking away their eternal life. Okay? Uh-uh. Okay? It's, it's, it's unthinkable that the Son could disobey the Father. If the Son could disobey the Father, we wouldn't be saved in the first place. Alright? Jesus can't disobey the Father. So this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So here we are saved. 
And we know the Father, and the Father knows us. And we know Jesus, and Jesus knows us. Now, what I love here in verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having perfected, accomplished, the work which you have given me to do. Isn't that beautiful? And you realize he hasn't gone to the cross yet. (laughs) And he's still claiming mission accomplished. See, don't confuse the purpose for his death with the purpose for his life. And because he was victorious in the purpose for his life, he's now ready to go accomplish the purpose for his death. So, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Everything that he was tasked to do in first advent, he accomplished it with perfection. So now he's ready to finish. And remember, it's not about the beginning, it's about the strong finish. It's about the perfection. And so, He's going to go to the cross. In the same chapter, we get down to verse 23, and we have the verb there again. You know, it's interesting. In this prayer, he's not just praying for the the 12, right? He's not just praying for Peter and Andrew and James and John and those guys. He says in verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. In other words, the church. That's a, it's a great verse to define the body of Christ. Every born-again believer that receives eternal life via the apostolic gospel. Jesus speaks to them, speaks of that right there in verse 20. That they, verse 21, may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And that, so this is the unity we have in Christ. Okay? The glory which you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be, here's teleao, perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So you and I being perfected individually and corporately, you and I being perfected becomes a testimony to this lost and dying world. They should see the, uh, the love of Christ in our perfection. So there's a deep thing. <laughs> All right? So, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. That's why you and I are supposed to be heavenly minded. Have our attention set on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. We've died. Our life is hidden with Christ and God. All right, so that's John 17. Up to John 19, then, we can get one of the teleo uses. I'm, gonna, I'm just kind of combining the teleo and teleao lists there. So John 19, 30. It's a pretty famous verse. Therefore, when Jesus had received the Sarah wine, he said, to telestai. Okay, perfect passive participle from teleo. It is finished. It is perfect. It is complete. It is lacking in nothing. It is finished. And I love, again, you can be a language geek all day long and, and I'll love you for it. Um, it is finished, okay? Perfect tense. Past completed action, present ongoing results. It is absolutely finished. We can't add to it. How do you add to something that's finished? He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So that's the, uh, the use there. All right, Acts twenty twenty four. Acts 20, 24. 
I love Acts 20. It's Paul's farewell address to the elders at Ephesus. And uh, he says, I'm not going to see you guys ever again. He says, uh, behold, uh, in verse 22, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and affliction await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may, teleao, I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. See, it's the finish that earns the crown. The finish earns the reward. Not the beginning. He can't say, well, I've done enough. I planted 12 churches. I wrote 13 books of the Bible. I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm okay. No. He wants to stay faithful up to the end. And that, uh, I think that's critical. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Remember the thorn in the flesh? Remember uh, Paul asked the Lord three times to take it away? What did he say? My grace is sufficient for you. For power is teleod in weakness. Power is perfected in weakness. So Paul says most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You never truly appreciate God's power until you're going through it. And then He sustains you in everything. And you realize what it truly means to be strong because that's not your strength. Then power is perfected. Taliao. That's 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Then we have Philippians. Philippians 3.12. What happens in Philippians 3? Paul says, uh, reaching forward, right? Forgetting what lies behind. Not that I've already attained it, or already become perfect. Not, so that's the verb. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Why did Jesus save you? Because you were going to go to hell and you didn't want to go to hell? Is that why He saved you? He saved you so you didn't have to go to hell. It's bigger than that. So much bigger than that. And so much so that really not going to hell is kind of uh, extra. Icing on the cake. Okay? It's almost a side effect, right? You ever see those commercials with the medication they're trying to sell you? And then at the end of the commercial, they run through this long list of side effects, and you go, yikes. <laughs> I was kind of curious and maybe trying that until you said all that scary stuff. I don't want to. Man, that's a lot of side effects. Okay? Well, think about it. not going to hell is not the point. All right, He's reconciled us to the Father. We have a right relationship with the Father. We are restored. It's bigger than that. We were laid hold of for a reason. There's a purpose. His craftsmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Well, what's that about? What did, what did He design us to do? What can we, are we able to say that we've accomplished the purpose of God in our generation? Okay? Because there is a purpose. And so whatever that is, why did He lay hold of me? What's He going to do with me? Well, then I need to lay hold of that and, uh, and have the attitude that you haven't done it yet. You're still reaching for it. You're still reaching for it. That's uh, Philippians 3.12. Okay? Uh, 2 Timothy 4.7. I love 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4 gets preached in a lot of ordination messages. 
solemnly charging the young man to preach the word, to uh, run his race, finish his course. And Paul says in verse 6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have teleoed, no, teleoed. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. I tell you, that's one of the easiest crowns you could ever win right there. Are you, are you living your life day by day in love with the idea of His appearing? Today that trumpet could sound. Today He could come. Is here, there, or in the air, and I hope it's in the air, and I hope it's right now. Okay? Loving His appearing is the criteria for the crown of righteousness. And, you know, I think that's... You, there's, and you say, well, that's a no-brainer. Who wouldn't love that? Trust me. There are thousands, millions, all right? Born again, saved. They're going to go to heaven when they die, but they're in no hurry to get there. And for the time being, God, just go away. Leave me alone, okay? Thanks for saving me and all, but honestly, back off now. I'm having fun, all right? And, uh, and, and honestly, God is inconvenient for an awful lot of His children. And that's, that's just it's heartbreaking. As soon as they get in the Word of God, they start to learn, they start to grow, they start to realize, oh, God's involved in this and you know, I've, I've been ignoring Him this whole time. So uh, loving His appearing and there's a crown associated with that. So there you go. That's a pretty easy crown to score and as far as I consider. All right, now let's look at a whole chain of these that come out of Hebrews. Look at that. Chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 9, 10, 11, 12. Man, what chapters don't have it? That might be a shorter list. Hebrews 2.10. Now when we, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, who are we looking at? Okay? Because the world to come is not destined for the angels. He did not, verse 5 says, He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. That's, it's, it's amazing to me. Do you ever read mythology? Do you ever read, uh, or you know, you could read it nowadays, you can watch it in the movies, Clash of the Titans or whatever. Um, but, you know, read Greek mythology and, and you're going to see, or any mythology, doesn't matter, Babylonian, Egyptian, they're all the same, just different labels. Um, in, in these mythological accounts, they, they look back to the good old days called a golden age, okay? And typically it's a heroic era, it's before humanity, it's before this current world, which is terrible. And back in the golden era, man, everything was just awesome, right? A lot of times those previous eras have giants, they have uh, Nephilim, they don't call them that, they have giants and they've got other things. Zeus was able to overthrow the Titans and I mean, any number of things. But when you study this mythology, it's curious how they're always lamenting what they've lost and they're looking forward to what's coming up. But in the biblical model, of course, what's coming up is not for them. The angels aren't getting the world to come. According to His promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which, first of all, righteousness dwells. Secondly, angels are the servants. Okay? Angels are the servants. And that's what chapter 1 and 2 details here in the book of Hebrews. They are ministering servants sent to, uh, it says in, in one fourteen, ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. 
They are the staff, the hired help, okay, for the thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ in the new heavens and on the new earth. And uh, a third of the angels said, no way, not those cockroaches, forget it. And they followed Satan when they said, we got a better plan, okay? So, Hebrews 2.5, he did not subject to angels the world to come. But one has testified somewhere, okay? Psalm 8, if you're curious. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you're concerned about him? What's up with this plan with human beings and procreation and baby boys, <laughs> okay? A father and a son. What picture does that paint? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Only for a little while, because he humbled himself. But he will be magnified. And so it's, uh, it's powerful. You look at verse 9. We see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Can you imagine? Here come the angels and they're singing and the, and the, uh, the, the babe is there in the manger and they're, they're looking at the creator God of the universe held in human hands. It just boggles the mind. And then he lives this human life and then he goes to the cross and he lays down his life. And uh, the description of that life is not really a pleasant one because it was full of suffering. And that's what it says in verse 10. It was fitting for him. It was appropriate, it was proper, it was right, and it would have been wrong not to. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Had he not had his life of sufferings, he wouldn't be qualified. Not only to go to the cross, but then to serve as our high priest in the here and now. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. You know, this is, this is the glorious thing. The angel of the Lord did not go to the cross. But the God-man did. Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. And he suffered. That suffering is uh, the perfection. Bringing many sons to go to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. So you say, okay, God, I'm cool with this whole perfection stuff, but let's do it on some other way besides sufferings. <laughs> okay? I understand the Bible says be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, so sign me up for that. I want to be perfected, but I don't want that suffering. Isn't there another way? You know, my comparative religions class tells me there's many ways. <laughs> this pluralistic culture I live in says there are many ways. Scripture says no. There is one way. The way, the truth, and the life. And in Him... We complete the sufferings of Christ. And it's, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of truth to be taught here, and we're going to get it coming up here in the, uh, in the book of Hebrews. But understand it's fitting, proper, appropriate, right. Chapter 5 and verse 9. And you'll notice, in the days of His flesh, back up to verse 7, here's Jesus and um, verse 5, Christ did not glorify Himself so as to become a high priest. 
He didn't, uh, you know, put himself in that position. The Father put him in that position. He who said to him, you were my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he also says in another passage somewhere, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, in the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. Can I add a phrase in there? To the one able to save him from death but choosing not to. Able to save him from death, but insisting that he die anyway. Because had he saved him from death, what's the consequence? We don't get saved. If he would have delivered his son, if he would have spared his son, if he would have changed his mind and said, okay, forget it, never mind, come back to heaven. Had the father bailed on the plan or let the son bail on the plan, guess what? We're not, we're not perfected. We're not saved. Able to save him. Able to save him. What did he pray in the garden? If possible, Take this cup from me? Well, it's possible, but what's the price you pay at that, at that point? And so uh, with loud crying and tears, I like that. Okay? He wasn't a rapture sissy or some kind of a weak sister or whatever. I mean, this is, this is the, the conflict that we go through. And he was heard because of his piety. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect. See, he was perfect before. He was perfect. And now he's been made perfect through this suffering. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is some deep stuff. And we're going to get to it. I'm, I'm so glad the Lord has given us now finally Hebrews and uh, looking forward to teaching this. Chapter 7, verse 19. Uh, of course, there's the setting aside of the one. You know, you realize we've got a whole different priesthood now. Verse 11, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood... Uh, what was Jesus doing? <laughs> okay, you know, if, if if the Levitical priesthood could produce perfection, then don't even send the Son to die on the cross. Just use that. No, clearly, it uh, could not perfect anything. And uh, I love. Uh, so here comes another priest in verse fifteen, according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement. Notice that? Hebrews 7, 16. On the basis of physical requirement. You got to be priest if your dad was a priest. <laughs> How about that? You got to be high priest if your dad was a high priest. How about that? You didn't even have to be saved. Isn't that great? I wonder how many high priests were unbelievers because their dad was a high priest. Our priesthood is not on the basis of a physical requirement. None of us would measure up anyway. Um, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Well, guess what, folks? You and I are partakers of that indestructible life. We have this priesthood. We are qualified with this indestructible life. And so, um, anyway, on the one hand, there's a setting aside of former commandments because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there's the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Isn't that beautiful? That's us, our priesthood in Christ. 
7.28, for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. Understand that, man, that, that guy had to go in and first of all he had to offer a sacrifice for himself and then uh, he could offer one for the people. Right? That's, uh, that's why, man, I mean, the former priests, they existed in greater numbers, they, they kept dying. So they'd have sons and grandsons and great-grandsons and generations would come and go and we need more priests, These, they keep dying. And uh, we got a priest who lives forever, okay? And then those guys, they had to offer sacrifices first for themselves and then for the people. Jesus, no, doesn't need to offer one for himself. He's already perfect. So the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. That's uh, 7.28. We'll spend a lot of time on that. Hebrews 9.9. The outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. It was just a shadow. It was designed to teach of the good things to come, the things that we have. Verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, that's us. Uh, Chapter 10 and verse 1, the law, since there's only a shadow of the good things to come, not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. I mean, obviously, if one of them could make perfect, then stop, we're done. But no, every year, here we go again, Day of Atonement, here we go again, Day of Atonement. Okay, it's another year, another Day of Atonement, here we go again. Year after year after year. In those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year not in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is why the Catholic Mass just bugs me to death. Totally bugs me to death. Because what are they doing? They're sacrificing Christ again and again and again and again. No, once and for all. Thank you very much. All right, 1014. By one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. 1140. Well, I'm out of time. Um, 1140, 12.23, and then the passages in 1 John. And so we can wrap this up pretty quickly. I think Sunday morning won't take too long. Then we can move on to our next slides about the day of Christ. And understand, what we spent, what, we spent three weeks doing this? Something. Anyway, this is only five out of the 23 New Testament terms that, that come from the telos root. The Bible's got a lot more to say about telos. And uh, we've only, only picked on five out of the 23 New Testament terms that come from that telos root. So we may look at a few of the other ones as well, but then we can move on and deal with the uh, day of the Lord, or day of Christ, not day of the Lord, day of Christ. Okay? Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for this night, and I rejoice in the perfection that you accomplish. I rejoice, Father, that it's, uh, it's your good pleasure to bring these things about. And Father, uh, you've got this incredible plan from Alpha to Omega, and you bring these things about in, uh, in your amazing way, uh, at the right time, in the right way, through the right testing, through the right circumstances. And a lot of it, Father, we, we would not choose for ourselves. We, we never, we wouldn't touch some of this stuff with a 10-foot pole. But Father, you, uh, you know what you're doing, and you put us where exactly where we need to be. And uh, in these things, Father, we thank you for uh, 
loving us enough to, to perfect us the way that you do. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen.